0: And now, from the dark corners of the internet, where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things that are getting sniffed, and the beer flows steady. It's Bulletcom Security Weekly. Sponsored by Tenable Network Security, the creators of Nessus, the world's best vulnerability scanner. Tenable Security Center extends the power of Nessus through reporting, passive vulnerability scanning, log correlation, and much more. Tenable, Unified Security Monitoring. Core Security Technologies, helping you penetrate your network. Rock out with your split out, good chap. Listen to this podcast and qualify to receive a 10% discount on Core Impact, the world's best penetration testing tool. Trustwave Spider Labs. They've evolved a 160 legged, international roaming, net crawling hybrid bug hunter with 80 pairs of eyes, 80 heads, and over 2,000 fangs. To learn more about how they can help your organization, visit trustwave.com forward slash spider labs. Making Larry say I love Justin Bieber every week is sponsored by NWN Corporation's Star Team, providing vulnerability scanning, penetration testing, risk assessments, and regulatory compliance review services designed to fit any organization and any budget. Helping your organization's security go from good to great. Visit us at nwnstar.com. Now, give the intern control of your botnet and pour yourself a beer. Here's your host. He's a few no-op short of an exploit exploits the elderly yes like that and a man who just realized star wars is coming out on blu-ray paul (laughs) asadorian that's not true i saw it in the paper on i've known about it since at least sunday
1: (laughs) give me that much credit Uh, all right i'll give
0: you that much credit sunday okay sunday
1: so, I am Paul Sidorian. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of Paul.com Security Weekly, episode 259 for Thursday, wow. September 15th, 2011. I'm, of course, joined by my good friend, Larry Pesci. woo My other good friend, Mr. Darren Wiggly. I want to know why
0: Larry was, like, British there through half the announcements. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's also another special guest in the studio. Go ahead. There is? Yeah, yeah he's right here. Right here.
1: Oh. What is this? oh Oh my god is that ronald reagan (laughs) what is
0: that winning (laughs) apparently charlie did you know he was gonna do that yes i did (laughs) Asshole! i'm not bipolar i'm by winning (laughs) (laughs) oh my god Charlie Sheen has joined the podcast. Oh yeah. God. My wife is not having sex with me ever again. <laughs> Except <laughs> if you have that mask on. Oh, no. <laughs> or wait, does she wear the mask? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh. Wait a minute! I don't oh. know. <laughs> it's it, it, we oh. each have a mask. Is that winning? I don't. Know. We each I, have a mask. You know what? I, she has the Brie Olson mask. <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> what? That was like insert joke here. That was. No, <laughs> but ins- totally. ins- insert what where? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, my man. God.
1: Oh, <sighs> wow. <laughs> I don't, you know what? We're just going to go right into announcements from there. <laughs> Because it's already gone to weird places, and, if I, and it can't get any weirder. And I if sure it does, I don't want to be here. So Paul will be teaching and handing out free tacos during this <laughs> advanced vulnerabilities canning techniques using Nessus, which Titans starts rule. on Saturday. Um, my, my, so when this podcast is released yep. on Monday, I will have already gone to class. <laughs> nice. So you
0: will have missed out on your free tacos. Nice. And, uh, you know, uh, Larry and, and John Strand. will be there with some TNA. Yep, uh, John's teaching. Uh, oh, that's teaching assistant. Yes, I'll be TAing six seventeen, doing an evening talk, and we'll be participating in Hack Lab with Mr. Strand. Are you giving your metadata? No, not. Um,
1: uh, what talk are you giving? Uh, geolocation Geolocation one. Yeah, at Sands. Yes, you're yeah. gonna clean that. Oh yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> big time. That needs some gonna serious clean, editing. Clean, clean that up right. It's big. A, Big so time. the talk is five minutes now. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much, <clears throat> yes. Wow. There's one good story still in it that's unusual. Right. The rest of it is because right. unusual is about as far as you can go. The rest of it's black black slides. <laughs> the whole slide is just black. Censored. <laughs> censored. Censored, censored, yeah. censored. Yeah. Parental advisory. <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's definitely cleaned up.
1: <clears throat> Excuse <clears> throat> me. Throat> <sighs>
0: Everybody okay? Yes. DerbyCon, Louisville, Kentucky, started 30th through
1: October 2nd. Coach Cast, Carlos Perez's training session automating post exploitation with Metasploit. Friday and Saturday of the con. That'll be the last time for that announcement. As well as we are nearing DerbyCon. If you haven't signed yeah. up already, you probably don't have a ticket or a hotel room. So you're SOL. Yes, pretty much. That's the way it works. <clears throat> Don't forget to check out Hack Naked TV, Hack Naked TV. There are now five episodes of Hack Naked TV. John Strand promises to record from an airport. It wasn't a bathroom. He did record an episode at an airport. Yes. And then he recorded an episode at like one of his relatives' family members' mom's house, something or like that.
0: Something. And there's like these plates hanging up the go- by the credenza in the from, background. From what he told me today, funny. the goal is to record one in a new city every week. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because we always said where in the world is John Strand? Now everyone will know Hack Naked TV, and we're spinning up a new Hack
0: Naked at
1: night. Mm-hmm.
0: Wait, tomorrow down. night?
1: Are you here tomorrow night? Uh, yep, yeah, we're Maybe doing. We're,
0: we're doing tomorrow night. We're you know we record segments. They get stuck into uh, a video cast. We'll pull the audio from um, when it's good and ready. Um, but we are recording segments every Friday, and I think this Friday we're going to try to spin up the uh, the live camera on the nice. stream, and we'll Very tweet nice. some information uh, where nice. we can find that and make sure everybody knows. <clears throat> and of course, don't forget to read our blog, participate in the mailing list, visit thepaul.com, dot Insider
1: Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Videos blip.tv forward slash paul.com currently for all of our videos. uh, Someone was asking – it was Bill from i-Shack was asking when Hack Naked TV would be a separate iTunes thing. It's interesting. Kind of a side note. Blip.tv has playlists. So I put all the Hack Naked TV episodes in a playlist. Yep. And the RSS feed seems to work for that. But it also says, hey, you can get an iTunes feed from this playlist – that doesn't work yet. I don't oh. know why I, I get an empty feed. I don't know why. So we will eventually will we'll make it stand on its own. Uh, so. In other Paul.com news, um, all like three different hour segments of the podcast have been released. So make sure if you're on iTunes listening that you've gone back in. 257 Part 1, 258 Parts 1 and 2 are in the feed. They kind of landed all at the same time. So make sure you go back in and download and listen to those. Yep. Um, also, Paul.com Español, mm. episode Ep- episode six <laughs> has been released. Nice. Carlos Perez did a nice job summarizing some tools to uh, test for the, uh, the mortal worm. Nice. And did a, a very nice episode, yeah. which has been <clears throat> tweeted in Spanish a lot. And I thank, again, TweetDeck for having the translate this function. tweet. Yep functionality.
0: And uh, last one for Hack Naked at night, uh, we're looking for you to tell us what to do with the device. We've yeah, got a Roomba got and we want to build
1: suggestions so far.
0: We've got uh, we've got a Roomba and we want to build a pen test device out of it. Send suggestions to psw at paul.com.com.
1: <laughs> yeah I don't know if Corey's suggestions were pen test related or if you're the kind of person that likes to Watched women in the bathroom. I don't know if that's where he was going with it.
0: <laughs> All depends on what type of engagement that pen test yeah. is. <laughs> that's a different kind of engagement. Or where said the engagement is. If you're yes. pen testing a porn company, maybe winning, winning. Mm-hmm. Which
1: are you going to be Charlie Sheen for? No Halloween, or are you just
0: winning? You just where did you? <laughs> oh, you know what? I ripped his head open. Did you get that in North Carolina? No, I got it at the the Halloween shop this afternoon. Oh. <laughs> Was that your? Did you go into the Halloween yeah. shop wanting a Charlie Sheen? Mask? No, not a Charlie. Not oh, wanting a Charlie Sheen okay. mask, but it was just so winning, I had to buy it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with that, we will take a short break and come back with our feature interview for the show. Andrew, back with a very special guest whose work I've admired since we started this podcast, maybe even before. Mr. Dino Daisovi, who is an information security professional, researcher, and author. Dino has been named one of the 15 most influential people in security by eWeek, and most importantly, one of the top 10 sexy geeks by Violet Blue. Welcome, Dino. Hey, thank you. And of course, is one of the people who has shared sushi. With some of the Paul.com members. Very nice. Very nice. Which I should actually
2: start adding to my bio as well.
1: You should. You should. It's a, and it was a marathon sushi experience. I think you that's, should
2: incorporate a, that in there. That's a political way of saying they took forever to deliver the food. Yes. Yes.
1: Very <laughs> much. Very much so. Uh, so, Dino, how did you get your start in information security?
2: Uh, in the information security industry or just the information security world? Uh, well, both. <laughs> um, I, I had been uh, attached to a keyboard since probably about when I could read, yep. um, and kind of hopping on bulletin boards and stuff like that. And I wasn't really into security very much because it looked kind of very, um, guessing usernames and passwords and it seemed really boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, I don't know when I was like 14 or so, like I found like frack and I was like, Oh wait, this is cool. Like there's like a bunch of like cool tricks. And like I started learning about like, you know, just vulnerabilities and like all that stuff. And, um, basically that i started you know playing around in high school and uh i was in like a independent study programming class and um one day like the teacher comes back from where the server is the linux server for the class and she's like oh my god we've been hacked and um i was like oh uh, let me take a look at it i'll see what happened and she's like really skeptical and you know she like she's i'm like all right you need to give me root here type in the root password and she gets even more skeptical and i'm like going around i'm like okay uh they use this like Linux, tel- like Telnet LD preload exploit, and they basically dropped a shared object into like the FTP uh, like incoming directory. And here's the exploit they used, and here's where they came from. And then she's like, "All right, uh, now it's your job to make sure this never happens again." Yeah, and <laughs> she's like, "I'm not going to ask how you know this stuff." User, yeah.
0: user, add Dino. <laughs> yeah. no, no, no.
1: Well, so it's I- interesting. She was smart enough to know that if you knew how to figure out how they did it, that you may have done it in the past, of course, in a lab environment, I'm sure, right? Of course, of course. Of course, of course. Um,
2: and, uh, yeah, she's like, sir, it's your job to make sure this never happens again, and so that means I get to have free reign over my high school network, so I got to, like, play around with a lot of stuff that, you know, just, you know, some of the fun stuff back then was, like, uh, Juggernaut, this tool that uh, Mike Schiffman wrote, uh, which is, like, hija- you know, dynamic hijacking of, like, plain text TCP connections and, you know, inserting into the stream and doing all this cool stuff, so I got mm-hmm. to play around with that on the unwitting uh, you know, students who were just trying to program during the day. So that was kind of fun. Nice.
1: Nice. So, so how did you, uh, so
2: like where did your career go from there, your s- s- professional career, we'll call it? Uh, I guess I you know, went to college, studied computer science, and uh, it was, you know, I was an intern um, at San Diego National Labs. Uh, and so I just got to be around a bunch of computer stuff and wasn't really doing anything security-related for a while. Um, but as I got better, I started meeting some other people and like got to switch departments and, started um, you know start doing a little more interesting stuff, and uh, I guess my first job in like the actual security industry was with At Stake. When I graduated, like um, I came up to New York for my birthday and uh, passed my resume to Dave Atell, actually, who passed it to the guys at the New York office of At Stake, and I interviewed like that weekend and uh, missed my flight going back home, and uh, then I just moved out here like with a backpack full of clothes and just got started.
1: So you missed your flight and you decided rather than catch the next flight home to just stay and live there?
2: Oh, no, no. no. I, oh, I missed oh, my okay. Kids. And then I went back home and then I came back like a month later. I got you, I got you. Kind of like, I didn't really have a job. I, I actually accepted the job offer like once I already moved here because I was like, I'm moving to New York. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's like I sold most of my stuff, sold my car, had a, like a laptop and a backpack full of clothes, rented an apartment for the summer, like a bedroom, and uh, basically flew out here and was like, then they gave me the job offer and I'm like, All right, cool. I guess I'll start in a month. I just hung out in the city for a month and then um, then I started so that's kind of how it works. It, it, now, have a, you been in
1: New York ever since then, or?
2: Yeah, I've been here for about like eight years. Wow, it's a hell of it's a hell of a city to hang out in for a month. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It's pretty awesome. Like it'll be really hard for me to ever leave here. Yeah, yeah. So I can't drive anymore. You know, if I drive, people die. So,
0: I, <laughs> <laughs>
1: especially
2: if you drive in New York, right?
1: Once yeah. you've lived in New York for a certain amount of time, you lose all of your driving skills. Is that is that how it works?
2: Yeah, actually, no. It's more than that. You just become unable to function in normal cities. It's yeah like, yeah i have to get in my car to get coffee how do people live like this <laughs> <laughs> like, i can't get toilet paper from like half a block away at three in the morning yeah like, how do people survive
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: they and they bring it to you you don't even have to go get yeah. it right you can, you can get order deliver. yeah
1: yeah deliver you can get a
2: big mac delivered at four in the morning on like a friday night it's like whatever you want um so I was like, "Yeah, this is pretty awesome." <laughs> <laughs>
1: if I can get Big
2: Macs delivered, then, you know, my, my requirements are pretty uh, straightforward. Yeah, if you're a hacker and you never sleep, like you have to live in a city world where you can get anything delivered at any time of night.
1: Yeah, so. that's, that's definitely a big perk. <clears throat> yeah. um, so at some point in your career, you and not by yourself, you collaborated with someone to. Um, write this tool called Karma, which, you know, Larry and I, we started out doing a lot of wireless stuff Mm. together several years ago um, when we were actually in Josh Wright's wireless class right before we started the podcast. And Karma was one of those tools that we just immediately latched onto. We had to know everything about it. We had to use it all. Well, Bob had to use it all the time (laughs) in
2: different situations. How did that whole thing come about? Uh, actually the, the idea came from, uh, my colleague, Shane McCauley. And he was like, you know, showing me on his laptop. He was like, dude, check out these, you know, it's like this thing is like all these, ne- all these laptops are like sending these weird packets, like these probes looking for these networks, you know? And so like, we started out by saying like, all right, well, let's just see what people are looking for. And we started sniffing and saw like people doing a bunch of probe requests for like Linksys. And we're like, all right, well, let's just make a rogue access point called Linksys. And then boom, they join. We're like, Hey, that's pretty cool. And, uh, then we started automating it. And you know, just make it a little better, and then kind of further investigating, like um, you know, why all these Windows laptops are constant. Like if they're not associated with anything, they're constantly searching for another network. And like this was actually the most fun, like when you're traveling, like mm. you know, if you at a, if you're on a plane or a train or any other area where there's a lot of people with laptops, but no open, you know, no actual wireless network. Like the Windows XP especially would like just keep searching for all the networks in the preferred networks list. Like every usually every network that the user is associated to. Like, every 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all you had to do was, like, you know, be one of those networks, and they'd join automatically. Now,
1: originally, was this just Windows XP?
2: Well, it it was XP and um, OS X, like, Tiger was out. Yeah, I think it was Tiger. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, like, it it did it as well. Linux Um, never really did anything like that, right? Yeah, because Linux wireless didn't work. So. <laughs> <laughs> this <is> so true. <laughs> so, I mean, you you had to go through incantations, so it was more the, the user-friendly operating systems that tried to do all this stuff for you <laughs> that you know, caused the problems and, like, the real awesomeness happened when, um, actually, this was also Shane's idea. He, uh, he found the... Um, that the firmware for the Atheros cards, like we were working on like using two different cards to like automate everything. Mm -hmm. And he found that like the Atheros firmware was just totally lightweight. Like all the 802.11 logic was in software. So basically we could just write a kernel patch to actually make what we call like a promiscuous access point. And so what that does is like, you know, any, any um, network name that the, any nearby wireless laptop looks for, the access point says, yeah, yeah, that's me. So if someone says, "Hey, is there a Linksys around?" you're like, "Yeah, that's me." If someone else says, "Hey, is there like a Starbucks around?" you're like, "Yeah, that's me too." And just get everyone to join. Like anyone that looks for a single um un- single unencrypted network, you know. And this is also the rise at the time that hotspots were becoming more prevalent. Mm. So everyone had at least one um wireless network that was unencrypted, and they'd basically just join our uh, um yeah, join the rogue access point or join the promiscuous access point thinking it was that network. And so you could get a ton of, you know, N- nodes on your network. And mm-hmm. once they did that, like you had a ton of access because you were their DNS server, their DHCP server, their default gateway. And so I wrote up a bunch of just modules to just, you know, hack all the things. Um, you know, if you looked for, if you checked for your mail, I'd be like, all right, uh, SSL is not available here. Why don't you downgrade, you know, oh, secure authentication methods. No, we don't do those trying to get passwords out. And if they went out to the web, we could proxy it out and start injecting client side exploits. And actually this was like, I don't know. I run like two thousand three, two thousand four, and not many. You know, now everyone's like, "Oh yeah, web exploits." You know, it's all kind of very common. But like back then, it was it was kind of new, and so like there were like easy exploits in Windows XP, like JPEG bugs, right. and Easy, well, So <laughs> easy your, Java bugs. Nothing's changed. Was some of your code still unreleased at oh, yeah. that point?
1: Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and is still to this day some of the code unreleased or?
2: Well yeah, it's a, a lot of it's all spaghetti. I mean I, <laughs> I mean I, unreleased I, I, because yeah, no, I hear you. Because sometimes I, mean, I, I write code and I, I don't want to release it either. Yeah, <laughs> but when I was playing when I was playing with it, like I'd write, you know, just random exploits and yeah. keep them in but there's there was no way I was gonna release those. I mean like if you if you look back, like it's very rare that I actually release a full exploit. Right.
1: Now is that because you want to keep it to yourself? Is that because you're afraid what other people will do with it, or is it just kind of a quick and dirty hack that you're, you know, not really interested in sharing, or combination?
2: Uh, you know, it, it's mostly the, um, I guess, like just my perspective on things. Like, I didn't really see the benefit of releasing, you know, full exploits publicly, mm-hmm. um, I and mean, that was just kind of how how I was from, you know, a long time ago. I thought it was, you know, sort of like no, you write your own exploits. That's just how it works. And like, Mm. you know, you don't, you don't give them to other people. And, um, you know, I give it to friends occasionally, but like, it was just a, you know, kind of a hobby of mine. So it was my own thing. Um, and I think that like, you know, you know, you basically, you publish like a actually really dangerous exploit and then like internet worms happen, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, it's, you probably, you know, drop like a remote Windows exploit on bug track and all of a sudden, like you get, yeah. you know, Blaster or Slammer and all these things. <clears throat> and, you know, I didn't, really, I do not really want to enable that. It's like, they can, they can, you know, those, those guys can try and write their own. Right, right, right. And it, So has your philosophy changed since then? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I still don't like, I mean, I'll contribute modules and stuff to Metasploit and things like that over the years. Mm-hmm. Like I, over the years I've contributed, you know, just a bunch of random stuff like shellcode encoders, like, uh, the original windows shellcode from Metasploit was mine. Um, just a bunch of random stuff and I'll contri- uh, you know, release bits and pieces. And the only, like, as far as I can remember, the only full exploits I've ever released were usually like at least a year or two old. And, um, kind of more for like uh demonstration purposes i think i probably only released like three or three full exploits in my life mm-hmm. and i've i've written a few more than that maybe now, five
1: no you gone back to the vendor for some of the exploits that you've written oh yeah yeah or? yeah, yeah. Okay. i mean
2: like i've i've reported enough vulnerabilities to um get sick of doing it you know when i was you know back in like the Two thousands or so, basically, it's like you know I was reading Bug Track, and I'm like, oh, the cool thing to do is you find bugs and you report them to vendors, and then they ignore you. Right, (laughs) like this kind of sucks. (laughs) Has that really
1: changed though? You think? Oh yeah, yeah.
2: It's like a lot of um, you know if you talk to any of the major vendors now, they're very responsible. You know, they uh, the major vendors usually, right? Yeah, there's there's always some vendors who have never gotten a a vulnerability report before, so they don't really know what to do. Yeah, Yeah, but you talk to any of the any companies that. You know, you've the big software vendors, and they have a pretty well defined process for right, right. handling this stuff, and they're very responsible.
1: I guess that is one of the things that has changed. Mm. So, yeah. now, did you uh, further any development on Karma to kind of go back to that?
2: Uh, every now and then, like, I kind of play with the code a little bit, because um, actually, the, the version that I use is for FreeBSD, because mm-hmm. I don't like Linux. Um, and like if you you know you just hack them to the hack the karma patches into the 80211 stack in FreeBSD and it works on like you know 12 different types of cards because they all same share the same net 80211 module. In the and, and that's a BSD specific module that allows that to happen, right? Well, I mean it, it similar analogous code also exists on Linux now I yeah. think. Um but actually the original uh, 802.11 handling code in the Atheros driver and the mad Wi-Fi driver was from BSD. Right, right. You know, so they just basically took all that code and put it in there. And so I just found it easier to develop on. So um, BSD.
1: Did, did FreeBSD and the BSD projects do it right the first time, and Linux kind of do it wrong and played
2: catch up for a while? Well, it, it, it's always it's the same thing basically with a lot of other feature sets. Like you know, the Linux world is very fragmented, but they're mm. more, much more experimental, so they get things first usually. Um, but the the BSD world is much more conservative. So they are, you know, in, in general, a lot of things they do, they kind of do what I'll come a little more right or a little more well thought out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you you know, if I install free BSD on a laptop, it's still probably not going to sleep or resume or anything like that. Right. So, right. Right. So, you, you know, it's
1: a mix. Mm, I hear you. Yep. Um, so now karma then was integrated into Metasploit.
2: Yeah, actually HD more, uh, did a lot of that work and there was, um, so now, yeah, Carmetasploit is So whenever people like email me asking about karma, I just tell them to use Carmetasploit because they have you know way better luck getting that to do anything than like the kernel patches that Shane and I released like for, you know in 2003. So it's like first step: find a time machine, you know, <laughs> yeah. get, get Gen Two and hardware from around 2004, right. and then install this install this code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sad part is I probably still have. Hardware. Said hardware. Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's, I just stopped doing like, I wasn't doing mm-hmm. as much consulting. You know, I started doing like a corporate job after that. So I just didn't really have time to, or the, like the exact need for the code anymore. So it just kind of got bit rotted.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, now, in, and that's an interesting question. A lot of more modern operating systems don't fall victim as easily to karma, correct? Mm, depends. Yeah, that's the answer I get from a lot of people. It depends, right? Yeah, actually, you guys probably
0: know a little bit Better than
2: I do. If you guys, used, yeah. so, I'm sure you guys have used it more recently than I have.
0: Yeah. So the the deal is now, Paul, is that uh, hidden networks yeah. are cloaked SSIDs. Right. When you cloak an SSID, you can't join a machine to a wireless network without manually or doing it via GPO or something of like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works in the reverse. So the network, the wireless access point, does not broadcast its ssid every six times a second right right right. so now the client has to ask six times a second hey are you out there are you out there are you out there or once a minute or are you out there are you out mm-hmm. there so now it works the same way you have a hidden ssid you program the machine the machine asks for it still does a probe but does the probe much more frequently
1: interesting but that's so, only hidden
0: ssids mm, it right does hidden ssids yeah. if it's not hidden it waits and listens for a pro, um, an announcement from the right. access point six times a but second. Didn't yeah, someone, but
1: didn't <coughs> someone do a patch where you would listen for the announcements and then become that announcement? Or that wouldn't really work because you don't know right. what all the well, you could, are. You, you could,
2: but you just have to be louder. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, actually, I've seen, uh, I think Robin Wright, is his name, like his website. was like digininja.com. Oh, Robin, actually, Robin, Robin, Robin Wood. Wood. Yeah. Robin Wood, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He actually did a lot of cool patches to... To Karma, I think he might have implemented that feature, and also some things like targeting specific MAC addresses and stuff like yeah. that.
1: He is also a BrewCon PowerPoint karaoke expert. Oh, <laughs> good, to, good, good to know. <laughs> Just you know, random facts about Robin Wood. Uh, so let's see. Go ahead. Karma. Um, no. To go if back another... to the way back machine again on Karma. Yeah um at one time windows xp was probing for these like completely random ssids
2: oh i loved that yeah that was like actually so that was the best part about that was it was something that i finally figured out what was going on on something that i saw like maybe five years before that because like i wrote like a network stumbler like i don't know 1999 or something like that i don't know when basketball knows the trendy thing to do and i kept seeing all these like you know, probe requests for these gibberish strings. And I was like, is this like uninitialized memory? I had no idea what it was. Finally, when I was doing Karma, like I found like a document on MSDN that explained the algorithm. And basically the, 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 the 802.11b cards at the time, like they could only look for networks if they were brought up. So basically in order to make sure that it, the card was up, Windows would give it a random name. It would just generate a random SSID and say, hey, why don't you try and join this network? And while it was doing so, it would actually be able to, you know, scan for other networks. And so it was kind of a an artifact of the card firmwares that were available at the time. Mm. And so that's why they looked for these random net these random network names. But what it allowed, because Karma was a promiscuous access point, it would just like you know respond to anything. And these cards would actually send out probe requests for these randomly generated names, is that Karma would actually respond to them and the card would associate and the network stack on Windows XP would actually activate. So it would actually come up and DHCP and address, but the best part was that the user interface wouldn't show anything. Mm. So the Windows XP user interface would not indicate that uh, it was associated to a network. So the GUI would say, "Hey, I'm scanning. I haven't found anything." But if you looked you know, at the command line and actually like did the you know IP config, it would actually show you that it was associated and had an IP address.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Nice. And that's that's one of the things that's nice. They've actually fixed that as of. Uh, uh, Think Windows,
2: a, Windows XP, SP3. Right. Yeah, there was a hot fix, or like, I can't remember the terminology. So I think it was like an optional update for Windows XP called the, uh, you know, the wireless blah, 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 that, yep. that basically fixed all the Karma right. stuff. And that was integrated into SP3. Um, yeah, so so, so good, that's a great way if you're,
0: you're doing a, an assessment at a client site, and maybe even wireless is out of scope, um, you can fire up... Uh, kismet and start looking for those unusual probe requests and know that there are windows xp sp2 machines without even stepping in f-
2: stepping foot into the building right but those probe requests you're not going to see on any modern card like you're only going to see it on 80211 b only cards right so sort of by just technology attrition you know you're those are going to go away interesting interesting but actually the, the best place to use karma or the best targets for karma now is because like desktops have kind of fixed a lot of this um but mobile phones haven't right so so basically, like I was doing a demo, and like everyone's BlackBerry kept joining, like no matter what they did. So it um, looks like the uh, the mobile phones will probably have some of these some of these problems going forward. Still, yeah, interesting.
0: Uh, let's see. So, uh, oh, we... so I had one the contributions for uh, Metasploit and Bitrot sort of a follow up on that how about uh the meterper like implementation on OS10 as a ah, question from carlos
1: yeah kind of a, that's a good segue into
2: yeah so i guess uh you guys can everyone can take bets on whether carlos <laughs> or i will finish it first or none of the above um, i think the safe money is on none of the above like basically that code has been like the town bicycle everyone's tried to ride it <laughs> Um, That's a good so, way to put it. <laughs> so basically, Charlie wrote it up, you know, for our CanSecQuest Quest presentation like a long time ago, and uh, and then I was supposed to integrate it into Metasploit, which I totally dropped the ball on. and never did, and um, and then we passed it to a few people. Someone's like, "Hey, you know, what's the status on this?" We're like, "Hey, you want to finish it? We'll send you all the code." And we did that to like three or four different people who I won't name, but uh, yeah, no one else did. So it's um, it's floating around somewhere, you know, if someone wants to take a stab at it they can email me and I'll email them the code and they'll probably do what everyone else does look at it scream and then go do something else <laughs> yeah so uh, what are the technical problems with that yeah uh, you know there's not well so the main problem is stuff like process injection is not gonna work because on OS 10 unlike other operating systems like so on other operating systems like you can p trace to another process if you're the same user
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, you can't do that on OS 10 uh, you need there's to use, no, like DLL injection in Windows, like there's no equivalent of that no, in Well, there is. You just need greater privileges. Like you need root. I gotcha. So basically, like, there's, a, there's a call called Task for PID, which gives you access to the mock task port for a given process. And to, you know, the, to, to execute it, there's a very complicated security policy on what it's allowed. But in most cases, just assume you'll need to be root. So it's like you need to get root, and then you can inject into another process. And that's so that's one of the key features that is just not going to work. Um, but everything else is pretty much Unix-like, so it's not too bad. But uh, it's just different enough that people have trouble and don't want to look at it.
1: So, how did you get into? You've done a lot of research uh, into OS 10 security. How did how did you get into all that?
2: Uh, I bought a Mac. Um, <laughs> there you go. And I, you know, I just it was in front of me, so I just started hacking at it. Um, it, was back, it was like I think my first Mac. Oh, so. Uh, I used to have a hobby of like rebuilding Unix workstations as I did through like high school and college. And so I really fell in love with like the next station. I thought that was just like awesome. Like it was awesome software. The hardware was all black and heavy, you know, like the the next Mm. cube was a big black magnesium metal cube. And like the mouse was also really heavy, which I thought was cool. Um, And then I, you know, saw that Apple bought next and was turning next step or open step at the time into OS 10. So I was like, Mm. ah, it's, it's pretty cool and i i did like a i did a you know pen test gig for a company in new york and like was kind of flush with money for a college kid and i'm like yeah i'll blow a thousand dollars on a laptop <laughs> and so i just bought an ibook and you know put like the first release of os 10 on it and uh, i was like oh this is actually kind of cool like it's like a unix laptop i can run emacs when i put a dvd in it plays it. Like, holy yeah. shit. Like, <laughs> wow. When I close the lid, it goes to sleep. And when I open the lid, it wakes yeah. up. I'm like, wow. And is it like, Unix can do this? It's like Linux or BSD, but it has usability. But it works. <laughs> but and, it works. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to give you an idea of the pain that I would put myself through before that, like before that, my main laptop was a SparkBook. Oh, my it's God. big metal SparkStation 5 in a... Metal trash can that had a battery that lasted like twenty minutes and it weighed like twenty Whoa, pounds. Wait. So wait a minute, Sun made a laptop. Yeah. I heard of those. Yeah, it's actually yeah. A, I think it was a British company called Tadpole. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. It's yes. actually pretty awesome. I mean, like it was a Spark Station in a laptop, but it wasn't really the greatest laptop.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember the same struggle. I mean, I used a, a Solaris workstation when I was a Solaris administrator. <clears throat> That's what they gave me for my yeah. my workstation was a, like a Spark
2: Station Five. That's that's what I had. And it was slow. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's why I got this, because I was a Solaris admin at the time. Like, that was my Mm. kind of side job through college for a while. And I was just like, well, this will make me learn Solaris pretty damn well if I have to use it every day to do everything. Right, right. And then, uh, so so I got a Mac and uh, started playing with it. Like, I was like, hey, it's PowerPC. Let's learn how the PowerPC chip works, because I like RISC processors more than x86 and all that stuff. Um, so I was like writing shell code for it and just kind of hacking around, finding some like local privilege escalations and some stuff, and like you know, found some like remote routes. And it was just, it there, was
1: a, there was a few people writing shell code for the PowerPC.
2: For yeah, couple. I think back then there was this guy uh, Palante wrote one for Linux. Mm. Um, uh, well, of course, the LSD guys were writing it for AIX, uh, and I think I, I think I might have written the like the first published osx shellcode uh, or maybe not i don't remember i think in my version of history i think i did yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there was, not, i remember one
1: other code. website that had it and i don't know if it worked or not but
2: There's this guy in b root actually PowerPC pc shellcode was actually pretty yeah. tricky because like i mean this is like my my uh, canonical go-to story about PowerPC is like unlike most other architectures they have separate instruction and data caches and that actually is something that uh, a lot of people writing shellcode don't really fully understand and like when i was i didn't fully understand either um And so you have to do crazy things, like also like there's nulls in the system call instructions, so you'd have to patch them out. And once you're patching them out, you're making dynamically modifying code. And so you have to understand the caching stuff to the you know separate caches to make it actually work. Um, But actually, what what do you
1: mean by uh, cache
2: versus uh, data call uh, system calls? Uh, or, sorry. Well, the processor itself has a separate cache for instructions mm-hmm. and for data, mm-hmm. and so this really, this really, buys you. And uh, well, this makes your life difficult with self-modifying code and exploits, mm-hmm. um, because you know, on x86 everything just goes to this. It basically has a unified cache, and it kind of the hardware fixes everything for you. Um, but on like, so if you're making self-modifying code, like you fetch instructions, and they're stuck in the instruction cache, and then if you try and modify it it's going to modify that memory in the data cache, not in the instruction cache. And so you need to flush the instruction cache so that it reads it back from main memory. And there's this kind of song and dance you need to do to do self-modifying code on PowerPC, which is a little tricky. But I found that basically you could avoid all that because the system call instruction had, like you had to put these null bytes in there, and those bits were unused. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, if I'm a hardware guy, if I'm designing hardware and there's unused bits, am I going to care what's in them? No, I'm not. So I just put all ones in there, and the, the instruction would still execute. So it's like, you know, why bother going through the self-modifying code, like, pain when you don't have to? So just fill in the bits so you don't have to patch it to get, out, to get rid of the null bytes, and it works. And so my, I think, like, if my, if my PowerPC, like, shellcode wasn't the first, it was probably some of the, like, smaller, you know, shellcode. So I was kind of proud of that little fact. Mm. Sure. And now we're all on X eighty six, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I wish the PowerPC would just got faster because I kind of liked, you know, <clears throat> exploits being hard. Right, right, right. <laughs> it did have that advantage. Yeah,
1: I agree. So then, wh- where did you take your OS ten
2: research from there? Uh, yeah, I just kind of kept playing with it. Um, uh, I guess I, I did that hacking a browser thing at Pwn2Own. Like, in, back in 2007, it was, like, the, the first Pone to own Like, you know, I'd been kind of just tinkering with it. And like, when I was bored, I would just, like, audit it. Because everything in OS 10 was new. You know, you had, all the, you had the mock underpinnings. You had um, just, just a very different system. So I'd always, like, wake up on Saturday mornings and kind of, you know, read some kernel source and just learn about it. Um, but then, like, CanSec uh, West was having uh, this pwn to own contest. And I actually wasn't there that year. I was, like, uh, I was here in New York. And a friend of mine, actually, <laughs> was Shane again uh called me up he's like dude they're having this contest like you know I, you keep on hacking this mac shit like and they're saying like you know you know trying to have a contest to hack this mac You're like i'm like oh cool i think i'll do that and i'm like when's the conference he's like uh it's right now so the last day is tomorrow so i'm like ah crap <laughs> okay and this this is like mm. 10 o'clock p.m like this is like 10 o'clock p.m on a thursday night so i was like uh i was like well let's see what i can do and um so basically i stayed up all night and um like I said, about four hours, kind of like around three or four in the morning, I found like a browser bug um, that was like actually in QuickTime for Java. It was actually an awesome bug that um, you just read and write arbitrary memory from Java code. And uh, so by six or seven in the morning, I had a working, you know, pretty reliable exploit for it that worked against Safari so and we, Firefox. So how did, how did you find the bug? Uh, well, so I just started looking at stuff, and like I knew from like looking at stuff earlier that uh, Apple was pretty bad about having um, – their own custom code in Java extensions directories. Mm -hmm. And so what that did is, if you put something in the Java extensions directory, it it becomes accessible to every Java process, and so it's accessible to applets. And so I just started auditing all that code. I was like, well, let's see what Apple put in the applets that Sun did not intend for there to be there, because that's probably a good place to find bugs. And uh, so I found QuickTime for Java, and I'm like, oh, that looks like a horrible idea. (laughs) <laughs> and so I, started I just so I used the JAD decompiler to decompile it and start reading the source. I got you, okay. And I uh, found this like memory copy method that like um, you know, just had poor bounds checking because in Java, integers are, uh, are, can only be signed. And so they, I, I saw them actually trying to ver- validate like the links and the indexes in the Java code. And I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. That's just going to be easy. <laughs> and um i was so tired at this point like i just couldn't do math so i'm like how about this paper of like me trying to like you know figure out these like you know the sign extension and like comparison stuff like it with like no sleep and uh you know figured out how to get it to work so i could read and write up to two gigs of the address space and so i was like all right boom i can do that but i was like but i'm like you know this is from an arbitrary like heat block so i don't really know where that all this is relative to um then i found there was like a the QuickTime handle had like a ID property, and that was actually the memory address. So I was like, "Oh, boom! I know the memory address, and I can read and write plus or minus two gigs from that." And that gave me a primitive that let me basically, essentially, read or write, you know, anywhere in the address space, mm. an arbitrary amount of data. So it's really easy to turn that into an exploit. So I was just like, "All right, let's just you know write some code somewhere, and then slam the address of that code all over the stack. It's messy, but it works." And I had a you know the exploit was you know reliable enough. And just you know, completely crash afterwards. But it just you know it was reliable enough. I sent it over to Shane, and like because he was in um he was in Vancouver, and so he ran it against the you know the MacBook there. And I you know the, the deal was is like I I just bought a MacBook, so I was like all right you know Shane, you do this, you you get the MacBook. Um you know I just get I just want credit. You know I found the bug, I wrote the exploit, I just want the credit. And uh, later that day, I found out that actually ZDI was paying for the vulnerability, so I got ten thousand dollars too. So I was yes. like oh that's awesome. So um, after uh, not having slipped and like, you know, going straight back to my day job from uh, hacking all night um, at 6 p.m., they actually ran the, uh, the exploit and called me and said that I won. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to the bar and buying a round of beer for people. <laughs> nice. 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 Yeah. Very cool. So that's, that was the kind of, a, you know, that's I, that was where my Mac, you know, hacking kind of career went. And then because of that, I wrote a book with Charlie Miller, because um, he started you know, getting into that too. And I introduced myself to him at Black Hat. And he was like, oh, I heard of you. And then, <laughs> then he started copying me by winning Pwn to Own every single yeah, I see how that worked. He was copying you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff you've done at Source Boston, you talked about uh, attacker math. What was that keynote about?
2: Uh, it was mostly about me not knowing what to talk about. <laughs> um, basically I was like I was like, I have a keynote, I don't know what to talk about. And so I kinda solicited some ideas from friends and like one of my friends was like, dude, do it like Glenn Beck, just two whiteboards and draw a bunch of stuff on the whiteboards. And I was like, it's a pretty good idea. And um and I can't remember what else I hang out with a math friend or something like that. And so I kinda got the idea of like, let's try and explain like kind of the not the overt logic an attacker uses, but sometimes kind of the subconscious modeling of their motivations and, like, figure out, like, why are they going to go after one target versus another and um, be not rigorous at all about it, but just trying to have a nice symbolic way of explaining why a certain attack path or target might be more attractive than others.
1: So how does that play into things like mass malware and, you know, the big organizations like Anonymous and LulzSec that are, are going after stuff. I mean, are, are, are they looking for, for something that is
2: kind of more widespread or do you think they have more targeted type exploits? Well, it, it works much better for explaining mass malware because it's a profit-driven enterprise. Mm. So if you're trying, like, you know, a lot of the attacker math was like using like attack graphs. It's like a you know, way of going from here to there through different paths and like each path has like a different cost. And so, like, you know, mass malware wants to get the most installs for the least amount of effort. So they're going to take the cheapest path to do it. Um, You know, targeted attacks like LulzSec and Anonymous, like, you know, when there's someone that they're, you know, angry about and they're going to go after them. I mean, it's this type of modeling doesn't really help. You know, it might tell them, might tell you, like, if disorganization is a target, what is the most likely path that the attackers are going to take? But it won't tell you like, you know, whether they'll go after one organization or another. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, and and the the overarching goal was to try and, like, so, like, people who have been doing pen testing and, like, kind of the kind of offensive, like, information security stuff, like, you kind of build this intrinsic knowledge of, like, where the soft targets are and, like, how you're going to attack a network or a piece of software. And for, you know, people, uh, defenders, they may not have that same experience, so they don't have that intrinsic knowledge. So what I was trying to do is trying to give people like a way of thinking that they could um, they could apply to their own networks and their own kind of browser setup, their browser configuration um, to figure out like uh, you know which will be more secure than the other because and it's you know secu- like or actually not which is more secure it'll be which will be attacked less um, because there's a kind of a big difference and if you model like the attacker is like you know if you look at the attacker target the target software by market share in addition to difficulty you can kind of get an idea of what will be attacked um, c- you know compared to another alternative
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> But being, cost also applies to the defender as well right you could kind of right. almost you could reverse that whole agro- algorithm that you're talking about and say well where are my cheapest defenses and where can i
2: implement those Exactly well and, and the point is your cheapest defenses is not by defending against every single possible attack mm-hmm. because that's just just going to be impossible and if instead if you you know focus your defenses on the most likely attacks um, based on you know characterization of your adversaries and their basically their preferences their capabilities and their kind of existing um, ways of doing things uh, you know, you will actually be, you'll get a cheaper, cheaper defense. Mm-hmm. You know, with, I think like yeah, at this point, like Richard Baitlick
1: made a, a post
2: along those lines. Did you happen to see that? Uh, I haven't, but I think like, you know, recently, like I've been thinking a lot along those same veins, like uh, with Richard Baitlick, um, uh, Mike Klopper uh, and uh, Dan Guido. I mean, I think a lot of us have been like kind of talking about this kind of intelligence driven defense idea, right, right. which is or, or basically what I call thinking with the thinking part. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of yeah, being to about it depends. was
1: similar to the scenarios you talked about. It was like you know, you didn't know this threat was out there, but you had these defenses and you were successful, so you just kind of got lucky. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But then there's the defenses that you you know you knew you had these threats, and your defenses definitely handled them. And then there was you know areas where you had no idea the attackers were going to do that, and you had no idea what defenses to implement, and that's usually where people
2: get compromised. Yeah. Actually, well, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd agree with that to- totally, like, a lot of the attacks follow very similar, um, you know, methodologies. So if you're looking at mass malware attacks, and even if you're looking at, like, APT-style targeted attacks, like, basically, like, also in my presentation, I started looking at, you know, my way of looking at the APT problem, and... The more I read about APT attacks, it's like they're not just against one company or a second company or, you know, a handful of companies. They're against a bunch of them. And so these, like, attacks have to scale. They can't, you know, basically be, like, you know, hyper-targeted, customized to each organization. They're trying to just get as much stuff as they can. And so to do that, they have to use the same methods. And so you can actually know what, you know, a lot of times, like, what they're going to do. Like, hey, spear phishing, like, emails with bad attachments. Like, we've known about this for years. Like, basically, you know, look at how long it took big companies. Like, once the people were sending out mail bombs, like, if, I, if someone works at a big company, I can no longer send a package to their desk. Like, 10 years ago, you could probably do that. You say, hey, this is to Joe, you know, Joe Brown on the fifth floor. And they deliver it to the desk, and then mail bombs start happening. So, they're like, all right, we're getting a mail room, and we're going to x-ray things before they come in. You know, but I can still send an email into a big company to an employee's desktop. So, it's like the same thinking hasn't Hasn't pervaded there, and like we know, like all the spear phishing of malicious attachments, malicious emails, and links, to malicious websites. Basically, if you just separate, you know, like the receiving of of content from like you know anywhere on the internet from the content that you create, like your intellectual property. I mean, you can stop. You can raise the cost of these attacks dramatically. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Very cool. So, what are the, some of the other things you've been uh, working on, Dino?
2: Um, Well, I gave a presentation to Black Hat this year on iOS, Mm -hmm. Um, spent several months kicking the tires on that, just Mm -hmm. looking at, um, you know, a lot of the various security mechanisms, because one of the things I was trying to get a better handle on and better be able to explain was, you know, even with like the web-based jailbreaks, like jailbreak me, which may make the platform seem very insecure, um, just to figure out, you know, how to explain and investigate like all the hurdles that you know that these guys had to jump through, and it's. You're talking about m- the jailbreak guys, right? Yeah, but it's specifically the web-based jailbreak me from comics, like jailbreak me. Well, actually, the first one was before iOS had all the security mechanisms. So, jailbreak me two and three, um, the one last year and the one this year, um, basically the web-based jailbreaks, and those are kind of a whole different animal.
1: Mm. So,
2: what were some of the things you found about iOS? Uh, there's a lot of actual really cool features there that make remote attacks uh, much more difficult. And in particular, it's the uh, dynamic code signing enforcement and the sandboxing that really makes it difficult. Like, um, you know, if you find a vul- like So a lot of people will um, you know, will say, like, oh, there's a ton of vulnerabilities in WebKit. So uh, iOS uses WebKit, therefore iOS is insecure. And whenever they do that, I'm like, all right, show me your exploit. <laughs> I want it, no, sure, yeah, seriously, put yeah, yeah. up or shut up. Yep. And basically, every time they're like, uh, "Yeah, well, it should be pretty easy," you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. It's like, yeah. no, it's not. Like, sit down, try it. Because mm-hmm. basically, what you have to do is you you know you exploit the memory corruption vulnerability, and then um, you have like code signing enforcement on iOS means that you can't inject new code. Like, you can't just inject shellcode and get it to run. It's a much stronger defense than DEP uh, than DEP is because with DEP you can just do a little do a little ROP to make some new code, some new memory executable, copy your shellcode into it, and run it. On iOS, you can't do any of that. You have to just um, do full ROP. And now iOS 4.3 has ASLR, uh, so that makes that more difficult. But on the other hand, Safari can now create new executable code on iOS 4.3. So there's kind of a trade off there. So you can kind of inject new shellcode. Um, but before that, it was just you know, really, really difficult. And then you, even if you got arbitrary code running, you're still in a pretty, sa- pretty tight sandbox. And the easiest way to get out of the sandbox was to attack the kernel. And this is basically what the jailbreak meets did. And so like, you know, in order to do like just based, like just to persist on the device, like what like an APT attack will do, where they like you know pop your browser, install some you know, CNC agent on your machine. Um, on a desktop it takes basically one exploit, you know, one exploit in Word or you know, reader or anything on sandbox, and they can just drop an executable and run it. On iOS, it requires like three or four, because you need to um, pop the browser. And then you need to pop the kernel to get out of the sandbox. And then you need to, to drop something on the disk. You need to exploit another vulnerability that will bypass the code signing at each boot. And that's like a third vulnerability. And then you can pop the kernel again. And it's just a you need many more vulnerabilities to achieve the same level of access. And that's, you know, more vulnerabilities than you need on like, a, like an Android device. You know, so where is, this, the,
1: is the mobile threat somewhat overstated by the media?
2: Right now, well, I, uh, the mobile threat to iOS that people say about iOS, I think, it's definitely overstated. Mm. Um, the the mobile threat to Android so far, we've seen like you know, a good amount of like malware. There's like yeah, Android, we've seen some Android. malware and some worms on that platform, certainly. Yeah, so I mean, like, so the threat's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being it looks like it's being monetized. Um, you haven't. I don't think I've heard of any like APT style attacks against mobile yet, but mm. that'll that'll probably happen next. So probably the next like year or two, so it's, right, it's right. something to you know be be concerned about, especially as people you know businesses are now allowing employees to get um, you know their work email on their personal devices.: Yeah, I think IT has essentially lost that battle, right Yeah, exactly. it's like they still want jobs, so they have to keep the, the natives happy right right right
1: Awesome. so is there uh, stuff you're working on now that you're thinking about releasing in the future that you might want to give us a teaser? uh
2: there's not that much in the oven right now actually i'm kind of taking a break from things for a bit because mm. uh i did a lot of work this summer for black hat and I'm, right right you know a little uh not, i wouldn't say burned out but a little toasted <laughs> yeah i hear you, I hear <laughs> you. take then it easy for a little bit time to go time to go recharge the batteries for a while yeah exactly read some books you know relax a little bit spend time with friends hang out uh-huh. have a pretend to have a social life you yeah know, stuff like that do you time write the next exactly. version of karma <laughs> yeah, it works on right. everything wireless right, Prime Interpreter for OS 10, and yeah. IOS. Yeah. Yeah, all these things just in my spare time it's, well
0: hey you know I like
1: the way that sounds I do too yeah. <laughs> if there's anything we can send you to help further along that process just name it uh, a salary for a year yeah <laughs> hmm. we'll take up a collection from our listeners how's that
2: alright okay we'll see what, see what we can do excellent yeah
1: well Dino thank you very much for appearing on paul.com it was great talking with you uh, oh, again you know since we've worked with karma we've been huge huge fans and uh it was nice sharing marathon sushi with you uh at black Hat. so we uh we hope to see you soon and uh, we hope you take a little break and come back and uh again our wish list is next version of karma that works on everything regardless and uh os 10 meterpreter of course of course
2: well thanks for the invitation and uh, have a great t- have a great night thank you you thanks too so. dino thanks
1: so, with that, we will take a little break, come back, and try and bring on our next guest for a little uh, technical segment action. And we're back with Elie Burstein a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford Security Laboratory. His research continues the advances in machine learning, cryptography, data mining, and HCI to create a more usable and secure systems. He's on tonight to take us through some of the security weaknesses in private browsing modes. Welcome, Hi. Ali. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for coming on Paul.com. Please do tell us about private browsing modes because I do sometimes use those in certain circumstances.
3: To buy a ring for your wife, right? Yes, yes, yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. Buying gifts for my wife, that's a good one.
3: Yeah, so um, we started to look at uh, private mode about a year ago uh, because it turns out that people have different expectations about what privates mean. Um, Some people expect it to uh, be private against people inside your your own, um, your own family, like someone use a computer after you, so and then you hope that they won't find out what you did. And some people have expectations that the private mode is about uh, the so website not knowing who you are, which is different based altogether because then it's more like a uh, network or web anonymity, which is completely different, and people were kind of confused of... Uh, what the difference between the two is. Um, I don't know if you remember at that time there was an advertisement by Microsoft IE for IE9, I guess, or IE8 about uh, how private mode was a great thing and it was more like in the line of having people uh, protecting against someone after the fact. Hmm. Hmm. So IE has private browsing mode All of them. Yes, all of them have it. Uh, all the four major have it. I think Opera has it as well. Haven't tested it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea would be that uh, you have different ways to enable them, and they have different UI. Uh, in Safari, you would have a small, uh, I would say, button on the right side of your bar, which is "private." Uh, Chrome would have a a small guy on the top left, which is like a like a spy. And Firefox will simply display in the URL title on the on the top of the Chrome uh, private in parentheses. Mm. Now,
1: what do the, what do the different browsers mean by, in technical terms,
3: of private browsing mode? Okay, so in technical term, uh, you have two categories of uh, private mode. Uh, the first one is the one used by, let's say, Firefox, uh, Safari, and Chrome, which is the idea that. Uh, when you start a new private sessions, what they do technically is they're going to put all your uh, state, which is um, basically your SQLite database and your files cache Mm -hmm. into a side, and they're going to create a new profile in memory. So it should not be written into the disk. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to start with like a a clean, fresh new sessions. So if you go to to the same website, then... You don't have the, your cookie I there anymore. Right. So they should not be able to link you uh, from the previous uh, sessions, your real session, to the new sessions. So in a way, they try to address two things. Uh, one is to prevent someone which is going to use the computer after the fact uh, from knowing what you did. Because it should be in memory. So unless you have a keylogger or malware, and just by looking at the browser history or the content of the file, you shouldn't be able to tell what the user did. And they also try to limit uh, what the website can do, of course a browser can't, uh, um, can't remove can't remove uh, the, your IP address it's not meant for that I mean it's not, it doesn't have like to built-in or any uh, list of proxies so uh, the website would still see the same IP which may be like a little bit confusing for user. So might expect that when you turn on the private mode and you you, we can't track you, which is not the case. Uh, so Safari. Is really nothing written to disk with like Firefox and Chrome? It should not have anything written to disk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not quite true. Uh, one of the exceptions would be uh, SSL uh, revocation list and uh, the certificate you did accept. Uh, for instance, for uh, uh, IE, uh, the certificate has stored into the Windows. Uh, certificate vault which is not dependent on on internet explorer so when you clean uh, up your history right it's actually stored in a different place mm-hmm. so some stuff i have are still written it's not like a big deal mm-hmm. but it's mostly in memory uh, i have a different way to do that it actually has this uh, index.dat which is uh, where he actually store a, a key a hash of what cache it has, and when you turn off private mode, it's going to remove them from that. So it actually left uh, some traces if you would do some forensic analysis. Now, I, have,
1: I have an interesting question. So if the browsers now are storing this private browsing information in memory, mm-hmm. can a website read from that memory, since it's within the browser context, what your, your history is in
3: memory? Uh, not without any exploit. No, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Because that's uh, prote- that's
1: protected from
3: the web. Yeah, it's protected. Yeah. Uh, but the two things which are and Safari is a different beast uh, because uh, what Safari does is when you go to private mode, it stops recording uh, what you're doing, but it's still going to provide uh, keep your sessions. So if you are already let's say logged into Gmail and you go into private mode, you're still logged in. Hmm. It's so it's, diff- it's a completely different model where they did, do not try to do any uh, sort of uh, web privacy. They just focus on uh, someone using the computer after you.
1: I gotcha. I so gotcha. it's
3: it's really different. So um, does it does it
1: revo- remove or revoke access to cookies that were already there in Safari?
3: So Safari is, I think, one of the only or the only one who have uh, third party cookie blocking by mm-hmm. default. Mm-hmm. So in Chrome, yeah, I think in Firefox, you can actually turn it on. But by default, Safari actually blocks third-party cookies, which are cookies from, uh, let's say, if you're browsing uh, New York Times, mm-hmm. and then you have a double-click uh, cookie, it will, not be, uh, it will be blocked by Safari by default. Right, right. Which right. is not the case, but this is a guy. Mm. Uh, so Safari will still send first-party cookie, whatever happens. Uh, if you use Chrome, Firefox, or uh, Internet Explorer, what happens is when you start browsing in private mode, then you might be able to be track the user if it's not exiting the private mode. It actually uh, behaves exactly like a browser, mm-hmm. which actually uh, leads us to the question of what happened with extensions. Uh-huh. So, so for extensions, uh, there are two kinds of models. Uh, the first one being the one used by uh, Firefox and Safari, which is uh, they run extension as nothing happened. So it's a big problem because, it might be a big problem because let's say you have ad blocks. I'm sure you will never block any ads because you love to sponsor the web. But if any for any reason you start to use uh, ad blocks, uh, ad blocks have a blacklist, a custom blacklist. And let's say you went to a website and you have all these obnoxious uh, ads, and you want to block them, then you, you start using uh, your own custom blacklist. When you exit the private mode, the blacklist uh, is still there because it is stored by the extensions, not by the browser itself. So you actually keep having it into, in your hard drive.
1: So but the, the blacklist doesn't necessarily indicate which websites you were going? It could indicate which type of websites you were going to, certainly.
3: Yeah, or which kind of ads you blocked. Right. Uh, it might also be like you whitelist a specific website to allow ads, and then we know what it is. Right. Uh, right. A good, ex- a good. I mean, a lot of people use NoScript for security reason, mm-hmm. and you tend, you, you tend to actually allow a lot of websites using whitelisting if you trust them. So then this web list actually tells a lot about uh, which website you actually did visit. Hmm. And it's not under the control of the user, it's under the control of the extensions. Right, right, right. So at that time when we did the study, there was discussions about uh, telling extensions that you are in private mode and then that you should not keep recording stuff. I don't know how many of people actually do for that. I think it's negligible or close to zero. Uh, Chrome has a different approach which I like better uh, which is by default uh, extensions are disabled and then if you want to re-enable them then there is a warning telling you if you want them in a, a private mode then they might record stuff and then it's up to you to clean after that hmm. but so far we don't have like a mechanism that say to the extensions we don't have like an enforcing mechanism to to make sure that the extension obey private mode. Uh, Chrome API actually allows the extensions to know when you are in private mode, so they should be able to do the right thing, but we don't have... I think I don't know any uh, tool which actually checked for this. So we don't know. Hmm. Interesting. So does it...
1: The way that browsers handle private mode, do you think, does it speak to their... Uh, ability to implement security on an overall basis? Like, can you use this as kind of a measure as to which browser may, may be more secure?
3: Well, I think they're almost roughly equivalent, except uh, it, I think there's a difference in their uh, their approach to the problem in a sense that, uh, let's say, Safari made, uh, Apple made a decision uh, which is we don't care about, uh, and I would say uh, web privacy we only care about. Uh, local privacy but they all did a good job mm-hmm. uh, you can't really infer which one is the most secure from that uh, it's more like it's something that people really care about which is like uh really surprising to us when we released the paper uh, we had i don't know like something like a hundred article of people all over the planet wondering how secure it is uh, maybe because there was a, the word porn somewhere uh, Astrodon <laughs> as a porn mode, right? But uh, it right, right. seems that people really care about this kind of stuff. So, well, I, care, uh, I, care, sense, I care about porn. <laughs> you care about porn. okay. <laughs> well, also you care about uh, private mode, maybe, or yeah, maybe. you have such... <laughs> right, right. So, um, well, I, well, cool. Was
1: it? Was there other uh, aspects or little tidbits you wanted to share with our readers about
3: through a private mode browsing? Yeah, that they should not expect it to be a, uh, a way for them to have web privacy against for anonymity. Mm-hmm. If you are seeking to have an uh, anonymous con- connection to the internet, then you need to rely on Tor and probably on the Tor button, which actually is more strict mm-hmm. and actually do that. Uh, don't. It's really important to actually not take uh, the anonymous function or the private function as right. And network stuff. I think that's the main takeaway for that. Or keep your keep
1: your browser in an operating system in a virtual machine, and just revert to snapshot every time.
3: Hmm. Which yeah, which only going to help you out with uh, someone after you on the same computer, right? But not preventing websites to track you.
1: Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, two different problems. Very cool.
3: Well, Ali, thank you very much for appearing on paul.com.
1: You can find links to uh, Ali's website and his Twitter feed where I'm assuming we can read more about uh, your research. Sure. Uh, You presented at Black Hat this year? I did. Excellent. I apologize. I I missed that talk.
3: um, That's okay.
1: You can find your presentation materials uh, on your website.
3: Well, actually, we have a webcast uh,
1: next week about that.
3: I know, webcast and we
1: can find out more information about that on on your blog. On Twitter, I will probably announce that. On Twitter, we you follow your Twitter feed. E L I E is your Twitter handle. Yep. Very easy to remember. Well, Ali, thank you very much for appearing on Paul.com. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. So, with that, we will uh, do a little magical video thing or and come back and talk about the stories for this week